Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their lives to protecting, researching and documenting nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects and worldwide environmental issues. Today my featured coffee is from Source Climate Change Coffee. I'll talk more about them at the end of this episode. In this episode, I talk with both Ben Porter and Shuru Hammer. Ben is a naturalist and photographer, and Shuru is a biologist and works for the Faroese Environment Agency. We talk about their recent work on the Faroe Islands, where they've been working to monitor the impact of offshore developments on seabirds. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me all the way from the Faroe Islands, um, which can you describe kind of where they are? Um, maybe Ben? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't actually live here compared to Shuru, but um, yes, yeah. yeah, so the Faroe Islands are a pretty remote archipelago of about 18 main islands uh, and between sort of roughly in between the Shetland Isles, uh, north of Scotland and Iceland, sort of roughly midway in between them, would you say, Shuru? Yeah, right in between, uh, you could say Shetland, uh, Iceland and Norway, pretty much. Okay, so pretty remote um, location, and uh, but yeah, I've I've always wanted to visit. It's uh, it looks like a beautiful, beautiful land. Um, I actually had a, a, a graduate, a recent graduate of the course I'm doing at the minute, visit for a long term uh, final project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've uh, been taking a lot of um, inspiration from his photography, which is uh, is quite stunning. Um, we'll start it off by getting to know you both. Could you? tell me a bit about yourselves and where your interest in in nature wildlife conservation first started um we'll start with you uh, i'm afraid i don't know how to pronounce your name well good uh sure uh, i lived in sure. i lived in scotland for many years and people just call me shoe <laughs> but so i don't i don't really mind whatever um but yeah sure sure Okay, perfect. Well, we'll start with you. Yeah, how did your? Uh, can you t- tell me a bit about you, about you, and uh, and where your interest in nature first started? Sure. So I was uh, I was born and raised in the Faroes, in the capital, Torshavn, uh, and uh, um, I suppose I've 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 always known that I wanted to become. Uh, something of a biologist. For for many years, I thought you know uh, that I get into veterinarian medicine um but but uh, as um yeah as, as i got older i realized that it's uh, it's it's more um i'm i'm more of a i suppose you could call a generalist so i i have i have a very i have a very difficult time uh, narrowing my interest to to specific specific animals or organisms so so i i i went to um to scotland actually to aberdeen to to do my bachelor's uh, in, in just general biology and uh, that's i suppose that's where um, yeah that's that's where my my interest really uh, grew and um, ended up uh, ended up working on on seabirds for my bachelor's project or my honors project and then then went on to um, 
uh, do a master's in Glasgow and a PhD in Glasgow as well, all, all around the uh, seabirds mainly. And uh, uh, now after returning to the Faroes, I've, uh, I've had a couple of jobs. Um, they've all been in, 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 in life science, but they've not been all um, conservation-based as, as my current position. So now I work at the Faroese Environment Agency. Um, and and uh, my, my job in, is, is quite, quite broad, you could say. Um, uh, I'm looking at, uh, looking at the, um, collecting biodiversity data on the Faroes and getting it into, uh, into, uh, into one um, uh, main database, and for for uh, it's it's meant to to be a a kind of foundation for for a nature um, uh, administration in the Faroes, which we which we lack. Um, so that's I suppose that's a, a brief overview. And Ben, how about you? What's your what's your story? Um, so I, I'm originally from North Wales, uh, somewhere called Conway in North Wales, and um, grew up in the sort of foothills of Snowdonia. Um, my parents were both very sort of engaged in the outdoors. Um, my, my dad did a lot of outdoor pursuits instructing and my mum was a sort of ecologist. Um, and so the sort of combination of them both um, meant that I spent a lot of time outdoors. My dad would show me different, he wasn't like an avid bird watcher or anything, but would show me lots of different species and, you know, Sort of definitely set the foundation for a broad interest in the natural world um and then the sort of main um the main thing that sort of really shifted gear for me was uh in when i was 11 so in 2007 we moved to a small island off north wales called bardsey bardsey island it's only a few kilometers long by a few kilometers wide it's a very small island um, and we moved there as a family to run the sort of conservation farm um and basically stayed there for about 10 years so um, this island is basically a natural, uh, national nature reserve and it's full of amazing wildlife, um, breeding colonies of all sorts of different seabirds, as grey seals, amazing marine wildlife and everything. And growing up there from the age of 11 um, meant that I, I just, yeah, I just spent like so much time just outside taking pictures, learning about the natural world. Um, there's sort of like a bird observatory there where they study the environment and the birds that move through there and moths and everything. So they sort of took me under my wing a bit as well. So I had sort of mentorship there. Um, and that's basically where I sort of inherited my, my sort of fascination in the natural world and uh, very soon decided that I wanted to sort of pursue a, a career in some manner of conservation or ecology and sort of learning more about the world around us, but also trying to protect, you know, um, species and and sort of habitats and i'd say of generally uh similar to shuru i'm a very much a generalist so i'm interested in uh lots of different elements of nature and how they all slot together and looking at um sort of not so much uh sort of uh, preserving things as they are but looking at how the sort of dynamic um sort of dyna dynamic relationships between everything and how we can sort of restore uh, ecosystems and look at how we can reduce our impact on them and everything so uh, yeah after after I left Bardsey when I was about 19 to head down to where you are at the moment um, um, studying conservation biology in Cornwall um, and then 
Um, since then, I've sort of done a, a few different sort of conservation related jobs and I'm now in the Faroes with a view to potentially sort of setting up a PhD project focused on seabirds out here. So that's, uh, that's where, it, yeah, that's where the, the relation to the Faroes comes in. Amazing. Um, yeah, Conway is a, an area I'm probably quite a bit more familiar with than the Faroes. Um, my, <laughs> my grandparents are, are both Welsh, so they lived in a small town called Harden um, uh, for many, many years. Uh, so Conway, Llandudno was an area yeah. we, we went to a lot as a, mm. as a child. Um, but both, both places I want to go, go to at some point in my life definitely need to go back to okay. Wales and definitely yeah. need to go to the Faroes. It's uh, a, a bucket list uh, destination for, for wildlife as well as um, just just being a beautiful place. Um, but yeah, you're both both uh, incredible journeys and lucky, lucky pl people to, to grow up <laughs> in such amazing places. Um, I've been following obviously the work both of you have been doing closely through both your social medias, uh, but obviously it's quite a, difficult to give everyone a, a picture of the work you do through just Instagram. Um, can I ask you, Ben, to kind of summarise the the project you're currently working on um, and kind of the aim of it or why you, and also kind of why you chose the Faroes might be a good, good place. Yeah, sure. So um, one of my real interests is in seabirds, partly because I was uh, I grew up in a sort of all manner of seabird colonies on Bardi and uh, I spent a lot of time uh, within research trying to find out more about their lives. Um, and specifically things like Manx shearwaters, which are nocturnal sort of seabirds that breed on Bardsey and also storm petrels, which are tiny, uh, well, generally quite small seabirds that spend most of their lives at sea and breed on remote islands all across the world. Um, and I was, I was helping a friend out with some research in the Azores a few years ago, um, trying to do some GPS tracking work on these specific storm petrels that breed out there. Um, and it was through Instagram actually that uh, Shura I think had seen some of the work we were doing out there and got in touch uh, with basically a sort of uh, basically saying oh, I've seen you know sort of some of the work that you're doing out there sort of tracking the storm petrels and things and he said that he thought there was a potential for an interesting project out in the Faroe Islands um, looking at various elements of um, sort of marine interactions with uh, some different seabird species like storm petrels um, and how they're interacting with things like fish farms off the coast, um, with proposed marine developments like wind farms, and also just generally finding out more about these species where um, seeing as the Faroes are such a, um, a hub for seabirds, there's actually relatively little information about them in, in this area of the sort of North Atlantic. So yeah, sure, I basically sort of pitched, uh, sort of said, are you interested in this? And I was like, yeah, that sounds, sounds good. And then uh, since then we're sort of, uh, most of 2020 obviously was through lockdown and, and the coronavirus so couldn't do much but we were developing plans for this research project and then uh, this year finally managed to come up in early summer in July 2021 and um, have been doing a bit of a pilot study through this summer to sort of see these places on the ground start looking at the, the European storm petrel colony and, and one of these and um, the islands in the Faroes and looking at how we can sort of set the set the ground for future work um, um, mainly focusing on how European storm petrels um, are using the marine waters during the breeding season around the Faroes, um, how they're interacting with things like, I was saying like with fish farm installations and with potentially wind farms, which are proposed to be developed quite close to one of the important colonies. Um, and this will mainly involve GPS tracking work in the coming years, hopefully 
um, which has never been done before in European storm petrels out here. So um, those are the sort of main elements of the of the project and uh, sort of how it came about, really. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um, and obviously, this is a, a pretty major project, even if it is just the the groundwork for something bigger. Um, sure, Ben tells me that you've been kind of instrumental and invaluable in facilitating his work as the main sort of Farrier's contact on the island. Um, could you give me a breakdown of your kind of role in the project, but also the sort of work that goes into organising something like this on the ground? Yes, I, I, I don't want to overemphasize uh, my role, really. Uh, I think Ben and his enthusiasm has, uh, has, has made this project possible. Um, I, I suppose my, uh, my, my, my position is that, uh, or, or it's, it's actually that I've at some point recognized that um, we're, we're not enough researchers in the Faroes to look at all these very important uh, questions and, and especially in relation to marine development and, and this, um, um, so these, all these great plans to do, to do more offshore wind energy, to do offshore fish farming. They're, they're, they're really, uh, monumental changes in, in the way we're using the, the waters around the Faroes and, and also in, in, in the bigger picture of the, uh, in the, in the bigger scheme of things, uh, we, we often see the Faroes as a kind of gateway to the Arctic, which we and, and all the Arctic uh, countries are recognizing that there's with, um, with, with climate change, there's going to be an increased in, in traffic and an increase in, in 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 both military but also industrial interest in in this region. So so we uh, it's we we really need all the help we can get to to try and uh, um, study these potential impacts of uh, what I would like to call light pollution. Right. Um, um, so so it's um, yeah it's it's basically I've, uh, I've uh, I mean I can I can I can appreciate uh, uh, that that it's it's usually the 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 love for nature that drives us researchers to to study study these questions but but in in, in relation to um, Ben's project, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, um, I, I just, I just want to emphasize that it's, it's a really important and, and, and challenging, uh, scientific question to, to try and tackle, um, the, the impact of, of the increased, uh, uh, activity, uh, offshore, but, not not to not to only mention the negative sides there there may well be positive aspects of having these offshore structures for example for for uh, for sheltering and such and that's i mean that's that's another that's another aspect that ben's keen to to try and quantify and also also uh, 
Ben's uh, other supervisor, uh, Rob, uh, he 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 mentioned that that there may be there may be an upside to these uh, lights in in, in uh, these man-made lights that so that uh, so that birds are able to forage for further than they would otherwise do. Um, so there are there are all sorts of complicated uh, uh, relationships, both pros and cons, you could say, uh, in relation to this uh, uh, question. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. I think it's um, it does seem like a, a really complicated topic. Um, I think a lot of people that I've spoken to in the past um, some people some people do criticize developments like wind farms sort of sustainable developments for their impact on seabirds um, I think all too often though that predictable predictably um, that criticism can come from supporters of the fossil fuel industry because they want to kind of devalue uh, sustainable development like that has a lot of work been not just in the in the pharaohs specifically but in the Arctic regions has a lot of work been done before to assess the the impact um, that these kind of developments has has on seabird colonies. Um. I could I could try. I mean, in in relation to the Arctic and Arctic development, no, I don't think there's a lot of research. But but there is, for example, a lot of research done in um, in the North Sea and and the mainly. The, or particularly the Scottish uh, sector, with with many of these large, large wind farms uh, uh, in the North Sea. So so it's it's not like we have we have no clue uh, about those impacts. But but um, I don't. Uh, there's not a lot of Arctic research that comes to mind. Maybe Ben would uh, know more about that. I think uh, there's a certain amount goes on a bit further into the Arctic Circle in Svalbard, uh, Spitsbergen. So that's uh, about 78 degrees north. And I know there's a certain amount that goes on on uh, some of the sort of seabird and coastal species that breed there, things like barnacle geese and guillemots um, and fulmers and things. Um, I'm not sure about sort of North American region. I think there's there's a bit that goes on, for instance, University of Exeter study uh, geese, like the Brent geese that breed up in Arctic Canada. Um, and their movements to and from the UK and obviously geese are potentially one species that might be imp impacted by things like wind farm developments uh, not so much maybe by direct uh, impact on wind farms but the sort of displacement effect it has so when it's been shown in like off the east coast of the UK like gannets will avoid areas where wind farms have been placed not so much they're not so much just hitting into them it's more that it's just excluded an area where before maybe they would forage um, so there's things like that but yeah I'm not off the top of my head, I'm not totally sure of the, the sort of amount of research that's being sort of directed in this region. I mean, as Shura says, there's definitely, I think, probably uh, increased awareness that it's going to be very much um, an area that's going to need more research in the in the next few years, as we maybe have the prospect of ice-free summers in Arctic areas, you know, in the next 50 years or less, really, realistically, seeing as um, the sort of the rapid changes that we're seeing now. Um, so definitely a, a very important area of research that needs to be sort of focused on yeah so you're not exactly building from the ground up uh, but there is a lot more work to be done there um ben you mentioned in your email that you that a long-term goal uh, potentially through a phd project is to 
fit GPS trackers onto storm petrels and track their movements during the breeding season. Why is this such an important thing to do? Um, what does it achieve in the long term, not just for storm petrels, but for, for seabirds generally? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, um, GPS tracking as a whole is a technology that's maybe over the last couple of decades really um, flourished, particularly within seabird research, because previously, you know, 90% of their lives are out at sea and, you know, we can only have snippets of information from maybe seeing them from boats or from shore and things like that. So studies have been quite limited um, on knowing what they do once they go from their breeding colonies out to sea. So GPS tracking provides a way of seeing you know, where they go, maybe where they're foraging, where females or males spend different parts of the breeding season, or where immature birds maybe even um, sort of spend parts of the migration cycle and things. So it's a really powerful tool to look in much more detail at how seabirds um, use the marine environment. Um, and specifically for this project, we're hoping to fit tiny little GPS tags that, that weigh less than a gram um, onto these birds. So storm petrels are only about 25 grams. Uh, maximum sort of 30 grams so they're not they're one of the, the world's smallest seabirds um, and so it's only just becoming possible to put gps tags on them because they're just about small enough now um, and so we're hoping to put some of these tags on mainly during the breeding season because gps tags uh, the battery life for these small tags only lasts a few weeks so you can only put them on for a few weeks and you need to retrieve them again to get the data off them so uh, there's a lot of work involved in finding a breeding pair uh, monitoring it through when they're sort of incubating an egg, maybe looking at putting the, the tag on sort of not long after the chicks hatch. There's a very small window at the moment that's known for this specific species when you can track them safely. And um, that requires a lot of monitoring beforehand to sort of narrow down on the right period that you can put the tag on and make sure it has no effect on the bird. So um, this is going to be the sort of challenge over the next couple of years, but it's looking promising with birds now nesting in uh, sort of nest boxes that some local ornithologists have put in in the colony here it means you can access their nests a lot more easily once they're nesting in these nest boxes um, and so get birds out put the tag on put them back in and then they'll go on a foraging trip they'll come back you can get the tag and see where they've been um, and that's not been done on storm petrels out here before um, so it'll be fascinating to see where they're being you know where they're foraging how far they're traveling and you know maybe what marine developments they're sort of interacting with already um, so those sort of questions become very much more attainable once uh, once once that comes into the picture. Yeah, I think it's it's really good to have a. Um, I'm not sure how long this episode will be. Uh, probably shorter than some of mine, but uh, really good to have a science specific episode because I think mm. a lot of people at home aren't scientists when they listen to this podcast, um, and they don't really understand the amount of work that goes into something like this. Yeah. Um, I saw your little story on Instagram yesterday. <laughs> about the uh, the sort of crazy descent um, to retrieve camera traps, um, which is just yeah, just using a, a winch on the cliff top and sort of abseiling down a cliff, um, and people don't just don't think of this or, or realise the sort of the amount of work that goes into GPS tracking or camera trapping, and um, and sort of practical on the ground scientific research. Talking of science generally, I want to focus on, Shira, your, your work kind of outside this project. Um, although there is a lot of exceptional, important work that the Faroese uh, Environment Agency do, sadly, because of certain uh, large organisations, a lot of the mainstream environmental news that we hear out of the Faroes is negative and it surrounds 
uh, traditional whale hunting and the grind and sort of cultures of uh, hunting long-finned pilot whales. Um, Woods, obviously there is a lot more that goes on in the Faroes and there's a lot there's lots of nuanced discussions around that specifically but um, there's a lot more research there's a lot more biodiversity than just that how can my listeners who are uh, not scientists and don't have particular access to maybe scientific papers or journals um, read more and learn more about the environmental work the wider work that goes on on the Faroes um, and, le- and learn and get involved that's a good question. Um, I mean, as part of uh, now that you mentioned the, the pilot whale hunt, there's mm. um, there's um, there's some quite important monitoring we're able to do in the Faroes uh, in relation to pollution that wouldn't be possible to do any other way. And uh, I don't I don't say that as a justification for for killing pilot whales. Um, uh, but but um, I, I think uh, and that's I mean I'm 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 kind of I'm proud of our role um, as as the environment agency to monitor um, monitor the pollutant loads so that's persistent organic pollutants and metals such as mercury and um, and uh, yeah, just general environmental monitoring that is that we've been doing for the past twenty years um, as scientists um, in 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 uh, kind of making the most of, of the pilot whale killing and um, and um, but but and I don't I don't necessarily think that. Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm probably not the right person to defend the, the pilot whale killing because I, I don't personally, I'm not, I'm not particularly enthusiastic about it. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not speaking on behalf of my my own government. Uh, but, but we do, um, we do quite a lot of um, uh, other important work. Uh, here at the Environment Agency, for example, uh, we uh, we monitor we monitor uh, the pollutant load and, and we monitor plastic uh, ingested plastic in in full Mars and other seabirds um, and um, so so the work uh, and I suppose that's uh, that's the bulk of, of our work that we do here is to to keep these time series alive and that's. That's the only. That's the only reasonable way we're able to uh, to to say if if, uh, if if things are looking better or worse. And uh, and I mean for 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 some for some pollutants, it's I'm I'm glad to say that we're um, you know where the international community has banned uh, compounds that we call legacy pops. We've we've seen them slowly but surely uh, move out of the food chain and and we can we can see that from from pilot whale uh, tissues as well as uh, other um other animals such as uh former eggs and and black guillemot eggs so um um 
Yeah, I mean, so so that's I mean, we we, uh, we, we play a small role in that. Obviously, it's uh, we're we're just one out of several several countries that that do these kinds of national monitoring that fit into a, a more a more regional scheme that we call the AMAP or Arctic Monitoring Assessment Program. So uh, so. Um, the pharaohs, uh, the pharaohs have become over over the over the years. The pharaohs have become quite a valuable monitoring uh, location for various uh, wildlife. Yeah, yeah, I definitely uh, would agree. Just from the the small projects that I've seen through through other people's work, um, is there is there any way of getting um, just the average person? involved in any of your work do you do kind of any international citizen science or, or anything like that or is it mostly just based within the within the islands that's a that's a good question i mean in relation to um i've uh, for for the past few years i've tried i've tried quite actively to look out for for uh, for people that were interested in doing undertaking projects such as a bachelor's project or a master's project and and uh, Ben's project obviously is, is quite a lot bigger than that but I've uh, I've, I've tr I, I think it's 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 very valuable to to maintain some sort of some sort of uh, contact with uh, enthusiastic uh, undergraduates uh, that, that are, are 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 willing to come to the Faroes and, and help and help with uh, with surveys. Two years ago, we had um, we had a, a master student from York, for example, that came up to the Faroes, and she was able to um, look into uh, into Max Shearwater stomachs, which which also much like the pilot whale hunt. We harvest max shearwater fledglings in the pharaohs, <laughs> so it's not. Uh, um, and um, and because because uh, because a scientist uh, had had the sense to uh, store some of these stomachs, um, this 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 young researcher was able to to have a look at at, at a really long time series uh, going back. Um, and, and and studying or or, or uh, examining stomachs going back 20 years um and um in but but in relation to you know proper citizen science projects we we also and that's that's in in relation to my you could say my my broader interest in in in, in biodiversity and, and conservation is that we we try and encourage people to use uh uh, citizen science uh, apps such as iNaturalist and eBird to eBird to record any bird counts that they may come across and and iNaturalist for for um, for for plants and insects and and they they do include birds as well uh, um, and that's I mean that's what we're something something we've noticed for the past few years is that there there are quite a few um visitors 
to the pharaohs who, who make a, a relatively large impact in, in, in relation to recording, um, recording the local nature, plants and, and, uh, and insects mainly uh, across the pharaohs. And, and Ben has been really good at recording uh, the bumblebees that he's come across and, uh, and, and uh, yeah, several other plants. So, so those kinds of citizen science projects are really valuable for us in, in, the, in, the, national, uh, in the national agency to, to, uh, to try and to, uh, firstly to, to, to get a good overview of, of the nature in the pharaohs, but also in, in relation to keeping an eye out for uh, potentially invasive plants. So, so for sure, if, if, if anyone listening is coming to the Ferris, make sure to make sure to uh, make good use of, uh, of uh, iNaturalist and I'd be very, I'd be very, uh, I'd really appreciate that. And, uh, and obviously anyone's always welcome to contact me uh, as well for, for projects. Sorry, muted. Um, yeah, perfect. That's that's great. Um, quite annoyingly, I didn't realise that this would happen, um, but because we have two people in the meeting, it's put a time limit on it. Um, so we only have Plastic. about four minutes left. Um, yep. I don't have very many more questions, but what I'm going to do, just so one of you isn't cut off mid-answer, is I'm just going to end this meeting and record, uh, export the recording, and then I'll just send you a new link to We'll only carry on for five, ten more minutes, but just in yep. case you don't uh, get cut off, if that's okay. That sounds uh, good. Back, be back in, in two minutes. Sounds good. Cool. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, we're back after um, not realising that there is a time limit to these calls <laughs> um, with more than one, with more than two people in. Um, sure, that was an excellent answer that you gave uh, just a minute ago. And I really do hope that people listening to this, um, whether they're scientists or not, decide to make a trip up to the Faroes uh, when they can do, um, yeah, when, when, they, when they want to and when they can do uh, for whatever purpose. And I think that uh, the best place to start now would be to kind of, um, just on a bit of a lighter subject really, and just uh, obviously, it's not been too too heavy this podcast episode but just on a, a bit of a um reflection on the last couple of months uh of the project um ben what's your been your favorite moment so far since you touched down in the pharaohs wow um yeah it's a difficult one to uh to put a figure on i think some of the first uh first visits to the to the storm petrol colony here on nolsoy so nolsoy is uh a small island just east of the capital in the Faroes. Uh, so it's just a few kilometers offshore. And this island has sort of probably one of the world's largest populations of, of European storm petrels. And they nest in a enormous uh, strip of boulder scree at the base of a sort of 100 to 200 meter sheer cliff on the east side of the island that stretches for maybe three or four kilometers along the sort of the backbone of the island essentially. And uh, some of the first visits there were with one of the local um, sort of ringers and naturalists here on the island um, and they were back in sort of late July so there was still there wasn't much daylight at that time and uh, um, obviously the first time anywhere is, is, is when things really stick in your mind it's all fresh and new 
Um, and so, you know, you start the trek from here in the, the village, um, which is a few kilometers away, and you sort of gradually walk into the colony and sort of into the looming sort of cliff above you. And um, the atmosphere there is just immense because it's just this huge cliff above you occasionally. It's just sort of slightly obscured and a bit of mist. Um, and then you set up the nets and gradually dusk sort of falls and you start hearing well, at that time there were sort of the dust chorus was things like uh, snipe displaying overhead so they have their this amazing sort of song flight display where their outer tail feathers sort of cre create this crazy buzzing sound so you'd have them over overhead you'd have some puffins calling out and they have this sort of, oh, oh, sort of call it's just uh, echoing out from the cliffs um, and then you just sort of wait as dust falls and then you can start to hear the storm petrels coming alive from the this crazy sort of rock scree that covers this place and then um, you know, sort of seeing the first storm petrels as they start coming into the net, so we can do some of the sort of uh, measurements and, and put put rings on their legs. Um, was just yeah, just the sort of the whole uh, the sort of the scene surrounding some of those sort of first visits to that area were pretty pretty awesome. Um, and we were so lucky with the weather as well, so it was just spectacular. Um, and it was really odd as well because you'd you'd be you'd start ringing at about half half past midnight because it would just about be getting dark at that point you'd only have a couple of hours and then it would already be starting to get light at sort of half two three a.m so the sort of novelty of that was quite um quite funny you know you're walk, walking back into the town as it's getting light after a night sort of out in the colony so i think some of those first uh, trips to the colony were definitely some of the most memorable um it's a spectacular place yeah that's great and i think um yeah i think if any of your descriptions this episode uh one didn't make people want to come to the pharaohs i think that that puffin call um might have, <laughs> might have clinched it i think they just to hear oh, that man. in real life i think they they're probably just booking plane tickets right now um so. and sure how about you since since ben's first day on the island um what what's been your first favorite moment that's a good uh, well since since Ben came to the Pharaohs, um, oh, that's a good question. Um, I can tell you what wasn't my favorite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, go ahead. Night when we were um, when we were uh, out east, no west of Torstown, um, waiting to be. Uh, you see, I'm I'm uh, I'm not used to nocturnal <laughs> seabird work like like Ben is. So, oh, no, so I wasn't. I uh, so it's uh, it's I, I usually leave that up to, to Ben to, to go on these uh, nocturnal uh, trips. But anyway, I was uh, Ben. Ben needed a lift over over west to 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 a fish farm, and uh, he. Uh, he uh, well, we we arrived there in good time, and and we were the only people there. Was it about two a.m. roughly? Yeah, and we we're just sitting there. Actually, I I I I want to be fair. It, it wasn't it wasn't too bad because we did we did see some some interesting birds, and uh, well, the, the 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 first night when we had to do this, Ben had forgotten to turn off. The, the the night vision scope that he was going to bring so uh, so that was completely ruined so so the, the whole point of his uh, entire trip to this fish farm was 
we had to we had to replan that. But but anyway, we 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 got a nice uh, we got a nice uh, trip over there, and uh, I I was I was able to get back to bed by three maybe, and uh, and um, he had a good. Um, he had a good, uh, uh, yeah, field experience on this fish yeah. farm. But that was that was the that wasn't the first that was the first time. And the second time, the the people that were meant to take Ben over to to the fish farm just didn't show up, and uh, we were we were a bit confused about that. But but anyway, no, seriously, uh, it's been uh, it's been. Uh, it's it's been a really good time, and I was I was I've been very impressed with uh, with Ben since he came to the Faroes. The the thing that impressed me the most was probably his um, his uh, his fitness, basically, <laughs> uh, the, the way he does regular runs to the southern tip of Nelside barefooted or barefoot, uh, you know. Eccentric stuff like that. It's, I, I'm pretty sure nobody's nobody's ever done that on the side before. And uh, so uh, I, I just wonder what 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 the local locals must think of him. But but it's uh, it's been a pleasure, and I, I hope he will have several more field seasons in the Faroes for sure. That's uh, that's true. Island living, I think, just uh, being raised on an island must have. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just. Uh, Barefoot Beth, running is is a next level thing. I can I can barely get get out running in shoes nowadays, let alone bare feet. Um, really, no, I, I've never heard of that before. Before I met Ben, yeah. Yeah, there's some there's some cr crazy people out there. There's a there's a guy recently who uh, I think it was last year raising money for Survival International. He ran the Three Peaks. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah. And he did a uh, so uh, Snowdonia. Scarfo Pike and Ben Nevis and he ran up each mountain barefoot and then with barefoot wow. shoes on like in between so he did like two marathons a day in between each mountain <laughs> yeah. uh, with with like specially designed barefoot <laughs> shoes so is yeah. it the whole thing nowadays it's uh, people people getting rid of their shoes and uh, and getting back to to their raw ancestral roots um, yeah it's it's great it's just uh, yeah I can just imagine you Sprinting down the the end of the island with no shoes on, the the locals just, what is he doing? What is this strange Welsh man doing? Um, what is he running great. from? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, so before we we finish, we usually do this little quick fire round. So like four questions that I've been asking all my guests since the start. I think the easiest way to do this is to do just one after the other. Otherwise, we're just going to have loads of answers flying about. Um, so we'll start with Ben. Let's do do it for you. Um, so first off, what's your favourite animal? Oh, goodness. I knew it was going to be some really difficult question like this. Oh, man. My favourite animal. Um, I think I'd probably... I'd probably go with... If that does that include birds? Can it include birds, or is that excluding Any, birds? Anything with uh, anything that's biologically an organism. Okay. Well, 
it's a very difficult question i'm, I'm, I'm very uh, i'm not able to hone down a specific one but i i'll probably go for manx shearwater is definitely up there um it's definitely one of my favorite animals um partly because i grew up in a colony of about sort of twenty five thousand sort of breeding pairs and on Bardi and uh, they fly down to South America every every winter and they can live for <laughs> they can live for about 55 60 years old um, but uh, they would fall prey to what uh, Shura's favorite animal is um, which we'll hear about later yeah <laughs> um, I'm gonna reassure you both and just say that I think there's about uh, the you, you will be the 25th and 26th no 26th and 27th guests I've had on, I believe. Yeah. Um, there's probably been about four people who have instantly been able to tell yeah. me the answer to that question. Yeah, it's um, So next up, uh, where's a place you'd like to go? And can, this is probably obvious, but connect with nature, the, the sort of one place you feel most at home outside. That would be my home. <laughs> yeah. That would be on Barsley Island off North Wales. Yeah, I can uh, recommend anyone who's, not even anyone who's got a passing interest in, in nature, but anyone um, I think I could recommend goes there because it's, uh, yeah, it's a really special place. And do you have a conservation hero? So just someone you look up to, uh, someone who inspires you every day in doing what you do? Yeah, I mean, I think Chris Packham's definitely up there. Um, not only because of his love for nature and his sort of unique story, but also just because he really just puts himself out on the line um, for some some pretty, um, you know, big conservation issues and will sort of yeah put his career on the line and things to stand up for nature. And I think that's uh, definitely a, a thing I really commend highly um, of him. Um, but there's, there's a whole manner of different people, both that are famous and both that, you know, are just known to, you know, a few people that I really look up to. Uh, as sort of mentors and uh, inspiring figures within the sort of conservation and nature scene. Yeah, perfect answer. I think it's definitely those those un um, kind of uh, unsung heroes that mm. I always like to hear about. And uh, I mean, yeah. Chris Packham's amazing. We've had I think four people um, give the same answer for the same mm. reasons, very similar reasons. Uh, mm. Last off, how do you take your coffee? <laughs> um, uh, at the moment, I'm a big fan of the sort of Italian press mocha pot, uh, so a, a, a decent sort of espresso. Um, but sometimes that's not possible with uh, sort of fieldwork conditions. So um, occasionally, I will stoop to the levels of a of an instant coffee, but that's not preferable. I mean, I can I, after this podcast doing doing this for over a year, I can recognise scientists now because anyone who's interested in nature, and I ask them, how do you take your coffee? And it's usually instant and black. That's all you get in the field. And I can, I can yeah. be like, you, you have a degree in science. You do field work, don't you? Yeah. You're not just yeah. a, any old nature person. Yeah. You, yeah. You've uh, spent months and weeks in the field um, existing yeah. off uh, brutally bitter instant yeah. coffee. Um, yeah. True. Uh, Shuru, your turn. Um, yeah, what's your, what's your favorite animal? No doubt. It's the great skua, the boxy. Um, which which uh, eats uh, Ben's uh, favorite animal for <laughs> breakfast. Yeah, um, getting, yeah you, you have a um, my this will be audio, so my listeners won't be able to see, but you have a taxidermied specimen right next to you. Um, mm -hmm. It's a, it's an epic. Bird. It was a, it was a gift. Uh, it was gift. It's made by uh, 
Jens Chell Jensen, who's who's a who's a naturalist that Ben's very familiar with uh, out in Nelsoy. So he's he's our local taxidermist among among other things. And uh, where's where's your place? Your place to connect with nature, sort of the the place that you feel most at home. It's a it's a nice question, and uh, I um, I believe, and I mean, it's not something that that was obvious to me. Uh, I've like I said, I've born and raised in the Faroes, um, but when I when I was doing my field season, um, I was mainly doing it on on the island of Skuoi. And I was I was I was studying great skuas, uh, and and skua just means skua island in Faroese, and uh, and that's that's the that's the one place uh, now that I feel a, I feel a special connection to, and a special like I I'm I'm intimately familiar with that island, even though I mean there there have been there have been seasons since. Uh, for example, this last season, I've not been to Skuoi even once, but that's that's my special uh, special place in, in the world for sure. And who's uh, who, who do you most look up to? Uh, could be several people, but but somebody within your your field, or who just inspires you on a daily basis? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm an ecotoxicologist, so so someone like. Rachel Carson would be would be the obvious choice. She's she's kind of the the mother of uh, of pollution research, really. And uh, her work was was uh, was extremely extremely influential uh, and and way ahead of her time. Um, but and, and personally, I mean, I, I really enjoyed uh, many of her books. She was she was essentially a a science journalist. Uh, I think her background was in marine marine biology, but but her mo most important work was uh, in, in Silent Spring. And if you, if you haven't read that, definitely check it out. Um, so uh, she she's my I, I suppose my literary hero. But but I'd I'd have to say also uh, Jens Chell Jensen out in the Faroes. He's been He's been a kind of mentor and, and a very important uh, uh, inspiration for, for my line of work uh, in, in the Faroes and in defense of uh, nature. Yeah, that's... Uh, he's, he, okay. Sorry, he's, he's not... I, I realize he's not that well known outside the Faroes, uh, although quite a few researchers will... will Will, will have worked with him or, or collaborated with him. And he, last year, he won the, the Nordic uh, Environmental Prize as well. So he's, he's yeah, he's no, quite well established. Definitely. I, uh, <laughs> I really enjoy hearing about the, the little known people. Um, there's many people that have been spoken about on the podcast that nobody outside of their close research or friendship circle would have ever heard of. And uh, and they're the best conservation heroes, I think, in in my eyes, is just the people who really inspire you on a daily basis, who are just not these big nature celebrities. Um, Rachel Carson, an answer that I haven't had on the podcast surprisingly before, and I'm really glad you gave it. Uh, ashamedly, to my uh, to my shame, I do have Silent Spring sat unread on my shelf. Um, I also have 
39 and read other books so um it's it, i will get there eventually i will read it eventually um maybe crack it off the list a bit yeah yes yeah, <laughs> just need need to uh need to need to get uh, get through that quickly um yeah last almost the last question of the podcast how do you take your coffee um if i go out uh i tend to go for um, a flat white Although uh, my my regular coffee back in Glasgow days was a double double. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, double double espresso, double cream. Very very bad for your heart, obviously. <laughs> but um, but my I, I'd say my I mean that's that's still my favorite. My regular is just um, I do air press here in mm. in the office, so. Kenyan uh, or Ethiopian beans uh, uh, and and air press just black. That's that's my it's my uh, yeah yeah regular. That's a great one. I've never heard of a double double. Um, quite funny because I think I've recently the science science uh, been done to prove that coffee is actually quite good for your liver and quite good for you. So I think uh, right. a double-double would kind of, um, yeah, <laughs> increase the product, uh, the longevity of one organ while simultaneously killing the longevity of the other. Um, Perfect. Perfect balance. <laughs> so yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, nice, nice 50-50. Um, uh, so I think we can wrap it up there, but I want to ask, um, Ben, you can go first and then, and then show kind of where can people find you uh, follow the work you're doing, get involved with any projects, um, your social media and, and online handles, really. Yeah, sure. So uh, I do try to put up uh, most of my sort of photography things and uh, sort of the current work that I'm involved in on, on Instagram or Twitter. Um, so for Instagram, that's at Ben Wild Images and on Twitter, that's at Bardsy Ben. Um, and from there, you can probably follow the link to my website where I've got a sort of selection of my sort of photography work and and that sort of thing, yeah. If I can just uh, allow myself, I, I believe I, I firstly heard of Ben through, uh, was it Instagram or Twitter? I'm pretty sure it was Instagram. Uh, yeah. I, was, I was really yeah. impressed with his uh, photographs. And and you, uh, George, you mentioned your classmate, was it Charlie? Uh, yeah, um, Charlie Moore. Yeah, Charlie Moore. He, uh, in a similar way, I was, I was, uh, I was really impressed with uh, with some of his photography and uh, and that's how we initially uh, got in touch. Also, he he happened to take some photographs of some great schoolers mm -hmm. on Nalsoy that I found particularly interesting because they they showed some uh, they showed some great schoolers that had begun their primary moth, so changing these feathers on the wings, and that was as far as I know the first. <laughs> the first photographs to ever show that, uh, except for my own from the field, and I was I was just very enthusiastic to find that. But um, <laughs> so I'm 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 just I'm, I'm just I just mentioned this to 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 say that social media can be really powerful in, in connecting people. And uh, what what I've uh, used for the most part has been, and uh, in relation to my my kind of science uh, outreach, it's been my Twitter. Sure. So it's just my, my first name, S-J-U-R-D-U-R. Um, Instagram, maybe to a lesser degree. But I think that's shorter with, with an H in the end. Um, so yeah, it's uh, to, 
both of you keep up the good work and um, I'd be um, I'd be happy to uh, uh, follow your work as a, you know in into the future thank you yeah that, that's uh, that's really great I think definitely uh, Twitter can be a, a important tool for science scientists and researchers I think probably more than Instagram and um, mm. but with the added benefit of Instagram being a, a photo and video sharing platform specifically for science communication it's really great um, I'm really glad I got you both on the podcast, especially talking about a specific project, because I followed Ben's work for a while. But I think if I was just talking to Ben, not related to this project, um, I think I'd just spend all my time talking about seabirds and lichen, um, which don't really <laughs> go together. But both topics I'm very passionate about. And uh, I know Ben is as well. Um, so maybe one day in the future we'll just sit and talk about lichen for an hour. Um <laughs> but yeah it's it's been a privilege to speak to both of you uh, i really hope the rest of the project goes well i look forward to following it on social media uh, all the links to these things that you mentioned will be in the description um and yeah hopefully one day in when covid and money allows me to i will um be able to visit the pharaohs in person and uh and and yeah just come and see the the stunning work that i'm seeing through through images currently um so yeah thank you very much thanks for having us yeah it's been, thank been great chatting. thank you thanks again to both ben and shiru for taking the time to speak to me today all the links to their social medias will be in the description down below so in today's episode we're featuring coffee from source climate change coffee this is an incredible company that was recommended to me by another guest and there's far too many amazing things to say them all in the podcast. So all the links to their website will be as ever in the description and please go and have a read of their story and put your money towards an excellent coffee. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and a few more places. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is Coffee with Conservationists.